Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1988 George Slauser film, The Vanishing. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Barrett, um, this was a movie you had mentioned. Um, I think you had said that it was unavailable for a while, and then you, and then, and then finally became available. So I'm curious what your history with this film is. Is this something you were aware of? back in the 80s or when did you first come across this yeah you know it came out as you said at the beginning it came out in 88 i don't remember when i ran across it it's it's been quite a while it might have been maybe the late 90s or so uh so i definitely saw it on video when i first saw it um and yeah i just um it was it's a film that i was just really taken by the first time i saw it and i've always wanted to return to it so I'm curious uh, if you can remember what were you, what was your experience watching this for the first time? I mean, did you know anything about it going in? And also, what stayed with you with this film that that okay. made you think like, okay, I, I want to revisit this? Yeah, I um, I don't remember wh- how I even came upon the film, so I don't even know what my expectations were uh, go- going going into it. Um, and you know, of course, I was I was just struck by. Um, the whole kind of play on the on the on the Oedipal notion of, you know, what does it mean to want to know the truth, and can you? Uh, what is the consequence of, of knowing the truth? And um, I mean, it's going to sound obvious, but what? Well, two things stuck with me: um, the long scene when she first disappears. You know, a lot of a lot of details of that just kind mm-hmm. of stuck with me. And then, of course, um, the scene of uh, of um, Rex in the coffin at the end. But what's interesting, Sam, is what didn't stay with me is that's not the last scene in the film. Mm-hmm. But that stayed with me as the last as the last thing I, I vividly remembered. So that's really interesting. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about this other than the title, um, and it's interesting because this movie has uh, different titles depending on where you're where you're from. And uh, I feel like that shapes potentially your expectations. So the English title of this is The Vanishing. So I was, I approached this movie. We'll talk about this. Like I, in the same way for The Lady Vanishes, I'm like, okay, one of these ladies is going to vanish. Like it's like some, someone, something's going to disappear, right? Like, you know, that the, um, the Dutch title is uh, Sporloos, which means um, without a trace or traceless. I think he was uh, listening to the, to the director. He was really, the vanishing is really what he was going for, but apparently there's not really a Dutch word for that. Um, right. And, and, and he talked about actually wanting to think, uh, he thought a lot about the shining with this. He must've loved the shining and Kubrick loved this movie. And apparently throughout the nineties, uh, they had lots of conversations about this. So, as he was thinking of the title, The Vanishing, he was thinking about the title, The Shining, which is like, he's to him, he's like, neither of those are really words, but they like convey something. So so that's that's the title that he went with. The French title to this movie is uh, La Homme Qui Voulait Savoir, which is The Man Who Wanted to Know, which definitely changes this movie if you walk in saying, that's what this movie's going to be like in some ways i feel like it gives up the game too much is like you know i wasn't sure what this was going to be and then eventually you realize that's that's going to be part of the 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 crux of this and then of course tim crabby's novel is called the golden egg which um is not a very good title except it doesn't give anything away you have to give it credit for that yeah, it's, I don't think I go to see a movie called The Golden Egg. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I, I think Slicer did exactly the right thing. As and as, you, as you've already said, it was a, a, a kind of a kind of his homage to Kubrick, and then Kubrick turned around and and gave him props back. And one of the conversations he had with Kubrick was Kubrick said it was the most terrifying film he'd ever seen, and Slicer said, "Well, you know, you did The Shining." And, Kubrick said that's child's play compared compared to this. Um, then, of course, the other interesting connection to Kubrick, as long as we're on that, is he was so impressed by the film that he cast uh, Johanna uh, Terhaga, the, the lead actress. He cast her in his next project, which was one of Kubrick's famous unfinished projects called this called the Aryan Papers, based on a novel called the uh, semi autobiographical novel called um, Wartime Lies. And they were eight months into production. They had done all kinds of um, uh, costume work, and, uh, and there was a there were multiple drafts of the script. And then Kubrick got cold feet uh, because he heard that Spielberg was coming out with um, Schindler's List, and he felt, and the studio felt that Full Metal Jacket had been hurt by the fact the Platoon came out right ahead of it. 
And then the other issue too, though, I think maybe even more importantly, is Kubrick just started to doubt that you really could do an effective film about the Holocaust. So, well, and and I I, I should point out um, this morning. I assume did you watch the uh, the the special features on Criterion for this movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, so just pointing listeners, like if you have Criterion, those were sometimes those are helpful sometimes not. those were particularly illuminating yes um because this is a movie where i feel like you can in, i realize watching those you can interpret the parts of this movie in very different ways so it was interesting to hear the director's interpretation of things and to hear the the lead actress's uh interpretation uh joanna vandersteeg about her how she viewed her character because some of the things she said i'm like oh i hadn't thought of it exactly that way um, so it makes me want to go back and, and view this movie through through the actress's lens a little more to say, here's what I was going for. Because I think she's right. It's there. But I didn't necessarily always read everything the way either the director or the actress did. So those were very illuminating. Well, I think it also raises a related question, Sam, which is, um, who is the main character of this film? Mm-hmm. I mean, I am, there are, you. I think you really can argue there's at least two and possibly three main main characters but i think that you know you certainly can see the film as either rex's story or raymond's story and that's the other thing i think that's very surprising about what the film does is it is it takes away one element of suspense right at the beginning uh it it shows you raymond and you don't know exactly you don't know exactly what he's up to but you know he's the bad guy um and and the amount of time the film spends with him uh is is really I mean, so it's interesting so it's really a film that could it could be the story of either or actually both of those guys intertwined around her absolutely well i'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that i thought was interesting about this is i mean this this movie is very much so a murder mystery right there is a murder and a mystery around it yeah, and there's someone yeah. trying to solve it uh but it doesn't match a lot of the typical structures so it is definitely not a who done it because you see um, you see Raymond and you see Raymond doing things which are clearly suspicious and you're you, you you see him as okay this is the guy who's going to be the the kidnapper or killer or whatever before we even get to before they even get to the rest stop we see that so you know that he basically he's saying this is not going to be an Agatha Christie whodunit um it's also not a movie about how Raymond gets caught because Raymond doesn't get caught Raymond is playing this long game and eventually presents himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so, you know, we get that halfway through, halfway through the movie as well. So to a degree, it's a like criminal procedural a little bit, mm-hmm. like, like so much of the time. And some of the most interesting stuff in this movie is watching Raymond practice and prepare but what's interesting about that is that happens really early in the movie. So it's not so much the mystery is not how did he do it because we kind of see all the ways he's been preparing for this. Um, so this is more centered around ultimately around a couple things. Uh, one of them is the question of why. So we yeah. know who did it. We know kind of how they did it, at least to a, to an extent. But we're stuck with the question of why. And then this is also a movie about closure because Rex does not have closure. And even us as an audience who knows more than Rex, we don't fully have closure. We we see how he's preparing, but we don't actually see the thing and we don't see what happens. And that's the question that, that uh, Slauser is sort of like uh, pushing us towards. He's like, you want to know, don't you? You want to know what you want to know what I haven't told you. Yeah, Sam. That, that's that's why I think the movie is so effective. In, in that, the mysteries the movie is exploring, it's using the criminal act and its aftermath as an occasion. It's almost like that's the movie's MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's using it's using the plot as the occasion for a really interesting, uh, endlessly fascinating, and somewhat scary investigation into a number of issues. In other words, you already raised the why. Why does Raymond behave like a sociopath? Um, how can you tell if there's a sociopath in, in your midst? Why Why does uh, violence happen to one person and not to another? Um, what's the price of knowledge? Um, do you have to have closure? Should you have closure? Um, 
what does it mean to be committed to another person? I mean, there's there's all to me, there's all kinds of really very deep questions about the fundamental elements of human life that this film is is engaging in in such an entertaining way that, that, that anyway, I just I, I, that's one of the reasons why I just think the film really works well because yeah. I just keep playing those questions over and over and and the film gives you some answers, but they're not necessarily. They're, they're not necessarily answers that are answers because you still don't know. I mean, I can tell you why Raymond does what he does because there's a certain element. I mean, I can talk about the nature of his character, but I can't tell you why his character is that way. Mm -hmm. I can tell you what it means for him to be a sociopath. I can tell you what choices he makes, but I can't tell you ultimately why he does that. Um, and then there are other things where you can't say why because it appears as though so some of the things that happen in this in the film that are completely by chance, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it, it was Saskia. It could have been somebody else. Um, and, and, and of course, the film was also raising questions about fate versus freedom. Do I do things I'm fated to or do things that I'm free to? Anyway, I, I just I don't know many films that can so can so effectively entertain and yet at the same time pull you into those sorts of questions. Well, and, and, and we'll get into this, but one of the most haunting moments in the movie to me is a uh, is a statement that Raymond makes pretty late in the film um and, and we'll we'll get into this in more detail because this is one where I actually kind of want to walk through the movie a little bit because there's so many things he's doing in this um but when he says when he's talking to Rex when they're in the car and, and when he's uh and he says you know uh killing is not the worst thing I could do right. and and it like so that which leads to the question well what is the worst thing you can do and the movie maybe shows you that but it also like i take a step back and say is it ultimately putting uh you know putting burying these people alive or is it what he's doing to rex is the worst thing he could do because he <laughs> says you know uh <laughs> the eternal uncertainty is the worst and it's like so is is it about is like killing saska the thing or is it killing saska so that he can mm -hmm. then play this other right. game. Is that actually, and the movie doesn't exactly get into no. his head enough to tell you that, but that's a thing that's haunting, <laughs> you know? And then, and then you wonder when you get to the end is like, well, does, does Raymond have like, does Raymond have closure now in terms of proving yeah. something to himself or has he now unlocked this piece of himself that this, he will continue. Like, you just don't know. And that's, what's so haunting about seeing him at the end sitting there. And you just think like, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Well, and, and, and maybe that's the worst, maybe that's the worst thing. The fact that he can simply continue with his life um, without anybody suspecting who he actually is. I mean, the, those scenes with his younger daughter, with whom he seems to have a particularly close relationship, are, are particularly chilling, right? Because yeah, they're the most upsetting part of this movie. I mean, and this includes people being buried alive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially when, when, when they're in the car and he's practicing on her as to how he's going to how he's going to capture these women, right? And that comes across as a gesture of protection and tenderness. You know, why'd you do that? Why, why you why'd you lock the door? And 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 the idea that what on the one hand looks like a fatherly affection, and on the other hand, it's actually rehearsal for murder. To see those two things as the same actions, and of course, the other thing that that reminds me of is the reason why Saskia gets into the car is she sees the picture of the family, yep. and she says to herself, "Ah, he's a family man. This is safe." I mean, though, to me, that might be the worst thing that he can just present this facade and maintain it his entire life. And you know that there are people who do this. We know there are un we we know that there are undiscovered murderers walking in our midst who are able to do these things and that to mm -hmm. me that's what's really terrifying absolutely absolutely so um again let's talk about the opening of the movie cuz openings are interesting so um the film opens with these like shots of nature that eventually pan out but what's interesting is the movie also ends with these shots of yes. almost yep. like almost like mirrored shots at the beginning and end of the movie um and we see the, uh, you know, we see Saska and and Rex on this road trip. We get a very um, shining esque helicopter shot shots <laughs> of them driving. Like that seems when you realize his affection for the shining, yeah. that seems intentional um, yeah, to yeah. to be like, well, I, I like I like that view of thinking about you know the, these people on the road. Um, and what what's great about this movie and is why I want to walk through it is 
he puts in all of these things that feel like I keep wanting to use the word clue, but they're not clues. They don't lead to anything. It's just, they are things that are going to become plot points later or just, or like character points later. So when they're in the car, they're playing this kind of alphabet game, naming Mm -hmm. animals. And what I realized when I rewatched this is, Oh, this is her learning French. Yes. And, yes. and, and, and that becomes a thing later on is, is that this becomes this conversation they have, you know, where, so he's giving her a letter and then they're naming how many animals in French can you name that start with that letter? And it's like, so, so there's, you know, so that again, it's not a clue to anything, but it's like, right. okay, hold on to that because this is, that's meaningful. That's not just, I need to come up with something for them to do in the car. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought that up, Sam, because in general, th- this movie also passes another test for me, and that is there's not a wasted scene or a wasted moment. There, there's nothing in this movie that doesn't somehow connect in a, in a significant way. But I also want to go back to the opening and the closing insects, because I thought about that. The insect you see at the, in the opening scene is a walking stick, and it is almost indistinguishable from a stick. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's Raymond, right? He's a sociopath and he's indistinguishable from, quote, normal people. The insect at the end is the praying mantis. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, which is a notoriously carnivorous carnivorous insect that gobbles things up. So I just, I don't think that's accidental. I think Slyzer was making a comment that we're doing that. So See, if I knew enough about insects, I would pick up on that. To me, it was just that. Uh, I, 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 mean, I, I, I don't know that much, but I know walking sticks and I know praying mantises. <laughs> That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so then we see them, you know, eyes are on the road trip. They drive past a gas station and they have the most like typical couple fight about like, are you going to stop for gas? No, we're going to be fun. Yeah. like, you know, and and um, and then we and this leads to them running out of gas in this tunnel, mm-hmm. which um, yeah. uh, <laughs> echoes this thing that's going to happen later. I mean, because be, being stuck in a long, dark tunnel is not yeah. that different. Well, it's very different from being buried alive, but it's in the ballpark. Um, in terms of people, if you have a if you have a a claustrophobia terror, which also comes up later in this movie, yeah. um, and in the tunnel, Saska tells this talks about the dream about the golden egg. We see this truck coming at them, and she looks at the headlights and says the golden egg or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And it's you know so so which is also a great moment because I'm I'm waiting for the vanishing, and I'm like okay, this like all it seems to be setting up for this. Rex leaves her and uh, Slauser talks about how like that is showing part of Rex's character that, that he would, that he would do that. And at one level he's going to be like, well, I have to go do this to kind of get us out of here. But at the same time, he does abandon her there as she is pretty frantically looking for a flashlight. Um, And then we cut immediately to him returning Mm -hmm. and she's not in the car. And I'm thinking to myself, well, there's our vanishing. But then he gets in the car and and he drives through the tunnel and we get this great shot, which mm-hmm. also echoes again at the, not even echoes, it just comes back again. It's the last, sort of the last thing Rex sees before he dies is, is um, Saska standing outside of the tunnel. And you see, so you see the light and that almost, you know, is almost an egg shaped thing too. You know, the, the kind of, the kind of oval of light. Um, and then uh, from there we get to the rest stop, uh, and and there there's definitely like obviously tension between them in the car. But then by the time they get to the rest stop, it seems like they're starting to to make up. Like 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 there this has happened, but this is also not going to necessarily destroy their relationship. Well, you know, a, a couple a couple of things to to pick up on there, Sam. One is that as you said, you expect the vanishing in the dark tunnel. And 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 what's the other thing that's great about the film is she vanishes. I mean, it's full sunlight and there's people all around and yet she vanishes. And the other obvious thing to say about the tunnel scene um, is that, you know, part of what motivates Rex is is not only the need to know, but the need to atone. Um, and so he has abandoned. Now, he does not know he's going to be reunited with her in another kind of dark tunnel, but he's abandoned her in one dark tunnel. And ultimately, you could say there's a kind of um, narrative closure there, not only about his knowledge, but about, about his kind of making up for abandoning her uh, earlier. So I think he, in that respect, he kind of grows as a character, even though he remains somewhat problematic. Mm-hmm. 
So then they get to the gas station and she goes in and we see Raymond, who we've already seen kind of prepping in the car. We see him look at her and follow her in. And again, you're like, okay, so here's the vanishing. (laughs) And then she comes back out and you think, okay, that clearly wasn't it. And they have these, this pretty extended scene together outside where she makes him pledge that he will never abandon her. Mm-hmm. They bury the two coins under the tree, which on second watch was so ominous. Oh, like yeah, thinking, yeah. you know, they they ki- they each kiss the kiss a coin and bury it under a tree next to each other. And yeah. I'm just thinking, man, how did I not like like <laughs> I didn't even remember that when we got to the end. And the second time I saw it, I yeah. thought, man, he's just he's telegraphing this to us, but in a way we can't see. And I think right. that's another one of those things where I'm like, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and and obviously, you know, to to since you've already referred to what happens at the end, I mean, that is that is the tip one of the there, there's two tipping points for Rex to take the coffee at the end. Uh, we talk about the other tipping point later, but one tipping point is the rediscovery of the coin and realizing that he actually needs to kind of follow through on that on that pledge. Um, so then they're about to head off and Saska's going to drive. And that, I mean, that, that's been part of their argument is about like, who's like Rex is trying to get her to drive and she doesn't want to drive. And she goes back in. And it's at that point when she goes back in that you, that you're like, well, you've already unknowingly escaped this and now you're walking back into it. So now I'm like, clearly this is going to be the vanishing and there, and it is, but it's one of the great slow burns too, because we've all had that feeling of like, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a kid and you know, you're waiting for them to come back. And it's like, your first thought is this is taking longer than it should. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is strange. And then this is bad. And you all, and most of us never get to, this is the biggest tragedy of my life, but we watch him go through all of that. It's really, really well done. And, And I think the other way that the tension gets ramped up is, you see Rex while he's waiting for her. Uh, he's he's in this ebullient mood, right? He he greets the guys next to him. You know the way that is when you're feeling good about the world. You know everybody in the world is your friend. And hi guys, and have a great trip. And so he's at this really high point. So I so he's really ratcheted it up in terms of how far he's going to come come down once he realizes what's happened. And it's interesting as he runs around looking for. Her, he starts calling her his wife. Uh, I, I noticed that because that confused me about their relationship. <laughs> yeah, it did. It did me for a while too, and I thought, no, I think he's just using that as a way to get attention. Because if he just says it's, it's my friend or my girlfriend, that's not going to maybe get people quite as interested in his plight. So, but also, of course, I think it's the tipping point. The fact that he's willing to use that language shows you that he's now made a commitment in his mind to her, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that comes after the pledge he makes. Yes. Um, and so then, then there's all the stuff around the gas station, and and there's this this great moment where again there's another clue that he misses that again doesn't mean anything. It wouldn't prove anything, but like when you see the the cans on the ground, like when I see yeah. the kid pick up the beer can and I see the smashed Coke can. It's like, well, I know what she went in to get. That's <laughs> the stuff, and he kicks the 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 Coke the smashed Coke can, and you're like, man, that he is at the scene of it. Yes, and doesn't and 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 doesn't know it. But even if he did, it wouldn't matter. Like like. Saska's prince would be on the cans, but but not Raymond's. But not yeah. Raymond's, you yeah. know. And 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 he has this this crazy idea, which he brings up later again about like fingerprints on the coins and the coffee machine. Oh, yeah, like yeah. that doesn't make like for one thing. Even if you could pull that, it wouldn't prove any. It would prove oh. <laughs> that at one point he touched a coin that was there. But but so there is this sort of like grasping for clues that are that are not clues. Now from here we get the shift. Uh the and and um so now we see Raymond and um I had no confusion that this was flashback. It's interesting. It, mm-hmm. Did you listen, did you listen, listen to the short like Bill Hader piece yes. on Criterion? Yeah. Hader yeah. clearly talked about it as like, "Oh, is this guy plotting another thing?" and then it was like, "Oh, and then I realized but like I, for some reason that I just was just like, "Okay, this is clearly the flashback." Um but we see him so methodically preparing um and it is there's something so strange about the scene where he's where he practices walking around the car and Mm -hmm. you know um Mm -hmm. because i started to think like how do i walk around a car and (laughs) and 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 like and and you know and then and what's what's 
so interesting about it is you see him do it a few times there. And then the number of times in this movie where he walks around a car again. Um, and, and you're like, man, I have seen him practice this and now we're going to see him actually, and eventually like we're going to see him actually try to do this. Now the, 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 the irony is that this is not actually the, the ploy he uses right, uh, right. when it, when it comes up, but, um, but we see him try this again and again. Um, we see him testing the, ether or whatever he's using to knock himself up and when he does the like times himself and then does the math yeah it's like that that is again such a strange so he's doing it to himself and and you realize he's calculating how far can i go yeah, yeah. um well, how much time do i have and so so it's literally calculating right he's mm-hmm. he's you know um and then uh like you said, the sort of rehearsing that 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 move on his daughter. The other thing he does with his daughter that that is the moment where I'm in like you are, which is weird because we're seeing him plot a plot a murder, but when when he does the thing with the spiders in mm-hmm. the um, mm-hmm. it's like so he's clearly putting his daughter, if not in danger, at least in a situation where she is terrified and uncomfortable and and that's where i said to myself like this guy's a sociopath even <laughs> though i've been watching him plot a murder like like to me that stuff well that's just movie stuff but like so, whenever it was with his his daughter i was like this is you've crossed a line which is yeah. a really strange thing to think yes uh but also evidently making him a chemistry professor and uh that element of his character that was slizer's um invention uh, he's not a chemistry professor in the novel, from what I understand. So then we see him trying to pick up various women um, in town, and he's, again, recording his pulse rate each time. So I'm even wondering, like, is he just going to drive them to the pharmacy because he's just doing the pulse rate test now? Or, like, was he actually looking for opportunity there? And then there is the really disturbing moment when he uh accidentally like propositions the his daughter's volleyball coach again a connection to the daughter yes and she just she unknowingly gives him advice mm-hmm. and says you know if you go out to the to the highway you're going to find a lot of strangers and for and and travelers that people yep. aren't going to know cuz she thinks he's looking for uh yeah. for an affair or a mistress or something like that and um, but like that is such a cold moment when you hear it the second time and realize, oh, don't don't give this man advice. Well, you know, two things about that, Sam. One is it's another one of those moments of just chance. If she hadn't happened to be say that. And then it's also interesting that that echoes the conversation he has with the daughter who says to him, do you have a mistress? Mm-hmm. And it's like, OK, so they think the worst thing he could be doing is having a mistress. And why is he putting all those miles on the car? Well, in fact, he's putting those miles on the car because he's doing something far worse than having a mistress. And they have they have no idea. And the great part about all of this for once we hit Raymond's preparations is it is phenomenal show. Don't tell because we never hear Raymond explain what he's doing. We figure it all out. Like you watch him walk around the car and you're like, OK, I get what you're doing. You watch him ether himself and like i get what you're doing i everything you understand by watching him do it rather than a moment of voiceover where he says <laughs> i needed to you know like like that's really and because it, it makes it gripping because you're because yeah. yeah. you you have to figure out what is he trying to do and yeah and it makes you um maybe complicit is too strong a word but you know one of the challenges you have with a with a story like this anytime you have a a villain who kind of dominates the action or has equal time with the quote hero or protagonist, you know, you have to figure out a way of how do you get the audience um, interested enough in this person and maybe even sympathetic that they want to watch what this person is doing, even if what this person is doing is really evil. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, Shakespeare had this down to a T, you know, I think about Iago in, uh, in Othello, for example, He's so fascinating. He's so bad, but he's fa- but he's but he's fascinating. Or um, uh, or or Macbeth, you know, as we watch him kind of descend into 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 his uh, his depravity. So I think that that's what I think that's one of the the effects that this has on us. Like we because we don't get explanatory voiceover, as you said, he's showing not telling. We have to pay close attention. Mm-hmm. And anytime you pay close attention, you can't help but be drawn in, even if you want to be repulsed. Right. 
Right. No, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're um, almost you're almost rooting for him at some point. I mean, it's it it sounds awful, but it's almost like, oh yeah, maybe maybe you're going to pull it off this time. You you almost want him to succeed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Be- yeah. Because because I, you're absolutely right. Because you're an accomplice it, yeah. to a to a degree. You're 100 percent right. So then we get this time jump, and it's a great time jump because again doesn't flash on the screen three years later but through the conversation looking at the posters you realize okay this time has passed and we see raymond seeing one of these posters and then we get reintroduced to rex and rex has it's interesting because he's both moved on and is incapable of moving on the fact that he has lenica the this new girlfriend in his life is like well okay so you you're not single-mindedly doing this but it haunts you so much that it's going to destroy the rest of your life. Um, and he has this this great line when he's uh, in the car with with her where he's talking about um, Sasuke. And he says, you know, sometimes I imagine her alive somewhere like I don't because I don't know what happened. And he says, either I let her go on living and never know or I let her die and find out what happened. And yeah. and in in him saying that he is laying the seeds for like this is the choice he's actually going to be given a little bit later in the movie. Like you, you can walk away from this and, and never know. Uh, or you can go all the way, th- all the way down the rabbit hole and find out what happened. Well, you know, this also points out one of the, uh, one of the other ways in which this film is structured is there's actually three triangular, three triangular relationships or three menage a trois. So the obvious one, the one you just referred to is it's, it's Rex, Sasuke and Lenica. Um, but also, of course, Raymond, Rex, and Saskia. But the other one we've been talking a lot about, Raymond, his daughter, and Saskia. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's real. I mean, so, so, so that's the other way in which, even though she has the least screen time of the, th- of the three of them, Saskia in many ways does remain central to the action just because of the way she affects those other relationships. Absolutely. So then we see Raymond writing letters or we see Rex getting letters from Raymond. We see Rex on TV and Raymond and his family are watching that. That also is very disturbing to me, yes. you know, that, that he's just sitting there with his with his daughter and he's like, oh, this is the crime I committed. Let's watch this television special about it. Um, so finally, he, you know, he arranges to meet Rex. Uh, and gives him the actual choice of like you can get in the car with me if you, and and I will and you will know everything like by the end of today you will know everything. Um, so and so he both and this happens a couple times on this trip as he gives him outs is like okay you now know more do you do, but you don't know everything but you, but if you keep going with me if we go to this next thing you will know more you will know more. Um, so it's while driving he starts to reveal the whys. So this is this is one of the mysteries we're 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 waiting for. So this is probably in the last forty uh, percent of the movie. So he tells the story about jumping off the balcony at age sixteen, um, and he you know so we we see this and it and he's leaning over the you know, he stepped over the balcony holding onto the rails and he's uh, and he says as he's telling the story everyone has thoughts of jumping but no one does it to go against what is predestined one must jump. So as you pointed out, this introduced so just by using the word predestined, he's introduced the idea of choice versus freedom, right? Like, or excuse me, predestination versus like choice or freedom, right? There's this idea of like, are all these things just everything happens because it's meant to happen, or do we have uh, a say in this or a control in this? And the idea that Rex, or excuse me, Raymond presents seems to be. Uh, the only way to be free is to make a transgressive choice <laughs> because anything else you're just playing the the script. So like jumping off of that, you know, kind of giving in to the imp of the perverse, like that will um, that that actually shows your ability to be free, and that's yeah. the only way you can show it. And that's a and and that is uh, that's partially the reason why Rex drinks the coffee, right? Because he quotes Raymond before he drinks the coffee. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of the many, many ways in which the two of them are parallel characters, right? They each have their obsession. For Raymond, it's the it's the villa, although that's connected to his actual obsession for killing. For Rex, it's finding Saskia. But as I mentioned earlier, I think um, that's, one of th- that's one of three reasons why Rex drinks the coffee. Mm-hmm. He also drinks the coffee because he's rediscovered the coins, uh, and he also drinks the coffee because 
ultimately he he does want to know. Um, and the terrifying thing about this film is the truth doesn't set you free. The truth the truth gets you killed. Um, the the other thing I want to mention too, though, is that there is this predestination versus freedom thing, or <laughs> or logic or or sensible being sensible versus being perverse. But there also again is the way that chance keeps coming up. So when they're going to the border, I mean, it, it reminds me of these games that you play when you're a kid, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're sitting in a red light. If this red light changes within the next 10 seconds, then I'm going to, then I can have a candy bar. I mean, just, you know, you play those weird head games. So he says, if they don't stop us, you will learn her fate. There's no, there's no connection between being stopped or not being stopped. And, and, and it, he is, he is basically saying it's not a predestination or fate in this one. It's just chance. If they don't stop us, or 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 maybe that means it is predestined, or it it, it is fated, and right. so the the film has so many moments like that, like when when he meets Saskia and she starts that conversation about the car keys, and remember she criticized Rex for having such ugly car keys. Mm-hmm. And Raymond's got this beautiful set, and they both are beginning. Of course, that's the other obvious thing we haven't even talked about. They're both our names. Right. <laughs> that, that's a completely random R word uh, observation on her part, but it becomes part of the thing that get, actually gets her killed. So then you start to think, okay, it's not about predestination. It's not about freedom. It's just about chance. Right. But if you believe in predestination, there is no chance is yeah, the problem, right? right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. So um so it cuts from that scene to then he tells a story about the scene at the canal where they take the family photo, which is sitting in his car, right? So yeah. we see that photo being taken. Uh and we see Rex or excuse me, Raymond make another jump, right? Yeah. And and so 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 this time he, he jumps off the off the bridge into the canal to save uh, to save this girl. So, so we see this like mirroring of that. Uh, and his daughter calls him a true hero. And he says, never trust a hero. They're capable. They're capable of rash gestures. Um, so again, is heroism also a transgressive behavior? Like, does it require you to do something which breaks those mm-hmm. norms of what anybody else would do? Um, and then he makes one of the strangest arguments that I, I I I want you to talk a little bit about. He says, "I needed to prove I was incapable of evil, so I conceived of the worst thing I could do, and killing is not the worst." Um, that's a weird argument, isn't it? Oh, it's a very strange argument, and 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 it's an, it's an argument based on um. What what, what I call it? it's kind of it's kind of based on an absolute view of human nature. It's it, it's you know um, it's based on the notion that if I'm not fully if I'm not completely good then I'm not good at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying, right? Because okay, because I'm capable of an act of heroism, does that mean I'm a hero? Well, no, because heroes don't do evil things. Can I do an evil thing? Yes, I can. Therefore, I'm not a hero. So it's just based on this kind of totalizing view that human beings either have to view themselves as completely virtuous. Or, or completely evil. It's, it's. I mean, because he's the one that tells Rex, "I'm a sociopath." Right. So, I mean, so, so for him, there's, there's no notion that I might be a person capable of doing a good thing. I might be a person capable of being tempted to do an evil thing and not doing it. But he's got to do the evil thing because, because it's, it's the equivalence of, of jumping. Right. So you know. The, right. The weird yeah. part about that argument, though, is in his mind, in order to prove he has to do the worst thing he could do, not just right. an evil thing. The other part that that stuck in my head, and I think this is interesting when you get later in the movie, and maybe I'm totally misreading this, is that he said, "I, you know, I needed to prove I was incapable of evil." So it's like he yeah. wants to prove that he can't do this thing that he's planning. Mm-hmm. Like, like that's what he's. At least in his words, he's hoping to prove I'm incapable of doing this thing, which I'm plotting and planning really methodically to do, which is, again, a really interesting way to phrase that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so uh, we see him then a little bit more of his planning. We see the trailer hitch plot and we see how that uh, that doesn't work because he uh, the, the husband confronts uh, confronts him. Um, and then he mentions to, to Rex, you know, I couldn't get the women I wanted into the car. He says, uh, prostitutes, yes, but that's too obvious, which points to the fact that it's not just I need to kill somebody, mm-hmm. but there's something about the person I need to kill. 
And I and that's going to circle back. So then we see the birthday scene, which is again very haunting because every gift he's given in the birthday scene appears as part of this murder, even if it's not meaningful. Like he's wearing the sweater. Well, that, what does that mean? Anything? But the car key or the the keychain sure matters, and yeah. the the book of pictures, and both of those are from the younger daughter. Right, is where he sees the cast and he gets the idea of, oh, I don't need a heavier trailer. I need to become weaker. Yeah. So then we see um we see the day of the the kidnapping um and we see you know him sort of looking at Saska and the, this is where he says and she even kissed you and that that was like the kicker for him of like I have chosen the right person which implies like I need to kill somebody who is loved by somebody or who right. loves somebody. Right. That's yeah. That's what I was going to say, Sam, about, you know, what you're saying earlier, why he didn't want to kill prostitutes. He, he wants, and that is part of why maybe that's what makes the killing even worse. He wants, it, it's another contrast with his family. He wants to deprive somebody. He wants, he wants a killing that affects not just the person he kills, but that affects other people as well. So that's, he, he wants to, he wants to make sure it has that kind of maximum lasting impact. So then we, we see this like replay of this scene of him coming in. We realize he is foiled by how busy that, that um, store is. And like, as he's about to turn towards her, all these kids come in and he can't get to her. And, and, and this is obviously when she returns. So we see him then just continue his plot with another woman and everything is finally working great except he sneezes and almost ethers himself. And it is a truly comic beat in a very dark movie. I laughed out loud. I thought that is so funny. And and, and that is the, uh, the final twist of chance, if you will. Right. Yeah. Just, I mean, yeah, if he, ha- if he hadn't sneezed, you know, Sasuke would be alive. Yeah. Now, yeah. And this else, other woman would be, dead. would be dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah. Um, so he goes, this is where I think is really interesting. He goes back into the store and cleans up, we see him throw the cast away. It's not just that he's like, well, I'm done for today. There is almost this sense. I feel like, and I this is maybe my read. I feel like in this moment, he's maybe given up this whole idea. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, because he seems so relaxed after that. And even yeah. when Sasuke starts talking with him, he's not immediate. He doesn't immediately snap into, I'm going to kill her mode. It's just. She just keeps presenting opportunities for him in that conversation. So I actually think he maybe for a moment thought, you know what? Maybe I have proved to myself I am, I am incapable of this. Mm-hmm. And then Saska comes back and they have this conversation and she starts to talk about the the uh, the keychain with the R's. And she does the same thing she does with the animal name. She does with R names, right? She starts naming R names. So we hear that echo. I think... She is so brilliant as an actress in this scene mm-hmm. because she is having to play struggling with a language and she's so full of life. And, and, you know, and she even talks about in, in one of the criterion things about like how, like she is just the kind of, she, she needed to understand that this character was just the kind of person who would turn to this random guy and just start talking. Because otherwise it didn't make sense. It was like, why would she approach him and start talking about, I'm going to drive on the freeway for the first time? Yeah, and I think maybe she says this in the interview, it's almost as though Saskia almost pursues him or almost, you know, kind of forces herself on him. And I, I, I really like your insight, Sam. It hadn't occurred to me that maybe he actually has given up. Uh, and that's another twist of the, of the of irony, right? That he's finally given up and suddenly this, this quote, victim kind of, presents herself to him, kind of forces herself upon him. And and when they go back to the car, I think there's one more connection to the villa, right? Because those tiles that he pretends oh, are, yeah. they're for the villa, right? So, so, the, so the villa is all intertwined as well. So, so we, we actually see him then like, like, so the, the photograph is what, as you pointed out, draws her into think, well, okay, this guy's safe. He's a family man. And then we see him. So it's so it's not his plot and his plan, but we see him fumble around and put the stuff on the rag and and ether her. And then we go back to Re- to Rex and Raymond in the car. We see them get pulled over. And here's where I didn't catch it the first time. His explanation for why he doesn't have a need to wear a seatbelt is he has yes, a doctor's yes. note because he himself is claustrophobic. And I thought, oh, so he is giving them his nightmare. That, that, that yeah that with that yeah exactly when i thought about you know what's what's worse than killing i'm thinking yeah he's saying you know what would be the worst thing that could happen to me and that would be to be to be enclosed in a box 
exactly. So then we drive to the rest stop, and we've already talked about this scene where Rex uncovers the coins, mm-hmm. and Raymond gives him this this choice of like the only way for you to uh, to know what happened is to experience what she did. And this is where he says the uh, the eternal uncertainty is the worst. And it's interesting because at this moment you're like, Rex, what more is there to know? Like, yeah. do you not know everything at this point? At the same time, and here's where it goes back to your complicity thing. Like, I just want him to drink because it's like yeah. I want to know, I and I know him. I'm safe as a viewer. So, like, I I, I end up accidentally on Team Raymond because it's like, come on, like, and there's this moment where he's not going to, and I think like. Okay, that's the right choice, but like I need to know what happened. I've watched I've been watching this movie and you realize, wow, that's a dark thought I'm having. Mm-hmm, <laughs> that mm-hmm. I want to I need I need yeah. to see this guy suffer because I need closure on what's happening here. Um, so then he said, you know, he kind of echoes uh Raymond and says, uh, to go against what is predestined, I must drink. He drinks. <laughs> we cut to him being buried alive. Um <laughs> Do you remember your your like were your feelings when you first saw that or? Yeah, I mean it's it's like I it, even sitting here thinking about it, I just get it. It's I I don't know. I get goosebumps. It's it's hor yeah. It's it's horrifying. It's like oh my gosh because yeah, it seems like the worst thing. Yeah. So then we then then as you said, that's not the end of the movie. So it's sort of his last thoughts are seeing Saska framed at the 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 end of the tunnel we, you know, he could have goes back to that view and then we see Raymond and his family having a picnic we see the wife watering a tree which i presume is above where they're buried to match yeah. the coins um <clears throat> and yeah i mean this movie is such a great depiction of a sociopathic killer or a philosophical murderer because so many of these stories circle back to remorse and like struggle like it's it's with that person struggling with what have i done whether it's raskolnikov or whether it's a leopold and Loeb kind of thing or but like but this guy has like there is none of that on on his face when we look at him at the end well and the and the other thing to think about is that um he also has answered um a question he's posed for himself right i mean yeah. he i mean that that so i so he doesn't have to kill again I mean, he, he had no intentions of killing again, right? Um, but I think partly he reveals himself to Rex in part because like a lot of killers who've done the perfect crime, he wants somebody to know what he's done. Mm-hmm. So, there's, so, so there's closure for him, both in, in he's revealed his crime to somebody who can never ever tell anybody that he, that he was responsible for it. And as it points out, Rex has no proof anyway. But secondly, he now knows, no, I'm not a hero. Um, and he can be, if you can put it this way, he can be comfortable in his identity as a psychopath, as a sociopath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, do you have other things? Uh, there's a couple other things I want to talk about with this movie, but I want to hand things over to you. Uh, I just wanted to just, I have two other things. One is, um, just a note about Slizer himself. Um, to be frank, he's, he was not a great director. I mean, this is like a one-off for him. We talked about directors who have only directed one film, and Slizer directed more than one film, but this is the film. And he made he made a, a he did a remake of this five years later with a big Hollywood cast, um, Kiefer Sutherland, Jeff Bridges, um, Sandra Bullock. Which have you seen that? Such horrendous reviews. I've never had any desire to, to watch it. It um, sounds like the perfect example of like when people talk about, you know, needing to Americanize or Hollywoodize a movie. Like it seems like they ruined everything that's interesting about this. And evidently it has a happy ending. Which yes, is, exactly. But 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 one of the th- interesting things about about Slizer's career, you know, I'm always trying to look for connections to other other directors I like, is he was actually one of the producers of Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Oh, interesting. Yeah, or it has some hand in producing it. Um, and then the final thing is, um, there is a really good article about the film on the Criterion Channel's um, magazine, the, the Current. And I, and I like what Scott Foundas says there. He says, uh, like a dark mythic fable, it is deceptively simple in design, complex in its resonance, and timeless in its queasy appeal. It recalls one such fable in particular, Frank Stockton, The Lady or the Tiger, 
whose nameless hero must intuit which of two doors in a gladiatorial, gladiatorial arena leads to death in which salvation. Only in Slicer's film, there exists a diabolical third possibility that a single door may lead to both. Hmm. I think that's a really great way to that's frame it. That's great, yeah. Um, I was thinking about pairings with this movie. Um, uh, it a very very different movie, but I think actually would be a, an interesting double feature. Is uh, Christopher Nolan's Memento yes, about yeah. another man looking for closure? Also, both of them use Polaroid cameras at a certain point. I mean, a very very different movie. But I thought about that as I was watching this, like this uh, this obsession to um, to to get some kind of closure around the death of of a loved one and i thought well these two these two would actually be pretty interesting to watch together well i uh, I, I have two options for watching together one of which we're going to watch next week fantastic um, so what do you have for us so the, the first one which we're not going to watch but i i really thought about and they're by the same director the first one is uh michelangelo antonioni's blow up uh from 19 i think it's 65 or 66 and uh, the connection there is with the photograph. There's a there's an ambiguous photograph, and uh, they just keep blowing it up and blowing it up and blowing it up, and they they really can't quite figure out what they're looking like, what they're looking at. Um, and actually, the the analogy to that in uh, the, the with sound is Coppola's The Conversation from '74, mm -hmm. and then interesting Blow Up was remade as Blow Out with John Travolta, which also used sound as kind of a mystery. Anyway, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, the rabbit hole we are going to go down is um, we're going to go back to 1960, which was, of course, the year of um, Breathless. And we've done a lot of French wave. So let's go back to 1960 and do Italian. Uh, so Antonioni was one of the great kind of art house directors of the early to mid 60s. And his La Ventura is the obvious pairing with The Vanishing. Fantastic. This is a movie I have heard of, but ha I don't know anything about. And I'm so excited to uh, so excited to watch this. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film uh, and for having this conversation. This is something I would have never watched um, without without this. But uh, it is a, a haunting and really well made. Oh, one other thing I should say, the score is really great in this. Oh, it, yeah, it, yeah. it functions really, really well. Um uh yeah this is the movie i would have never watched and this is a movie i'm never gonna forget so that's uh and it has it has at its core a couple of really great performances i think um uh um joanna vandersteeg is is or, or Terstieg is only in the movie for 11 minutes yeah she feels yeah. like she is all over this movie um so fantastic movie thank you for for recommending it thank you for the conversation that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about la ventura in the video store